Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. discussion. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can also find this podcast on iTunes or at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. Today on Mormon Discussion, we interview Rock Waterman, author of the blog puremormonism.blogspot.com. Rock has some incredibly interesting views on the church and on the gospel. So we go now to my interview with Rock Waterman. Rock Waterman, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Hey, great. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk here. Uh, Bill, I've been, uh, uh, I'm an admirer of your podcast program. Relatively new, isn't it? Like, uh, uh, a thoughtful faith, uh, both yours and, uh, Micah, uh, Nicolaison, uh, who interviewed me a little while back. Uh, I like what you guys are doing because, and I think it's a very valuable, uh, contribution to, I don't know what you call it, Mormon studies, because we're in an era now where a lot of people are, are questioning and having problems and you're answering these things. So right off the bat, I would like to recommend anybody listening to this, shut this interview off and listen to the one by Brad Wilcox, because that guy gets it. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, he does. Uh, Rock, we're grateful to have you on the program today. I know you've got a blog, puremormonism.blogspot.com, correct? Yes, yes. That's where it's found. And your uh, your blog is quite intriguing. It certainly, I would say, is a faithful perspective. It certainly doesn't disbelieve in the Book of Mormon or in the Gospel of Jesus Christ as restored through the Prophet Joseph That's Smith. But, but you do offer a view that is, I would say, um, unconventional is probably the best word I can think of. Uh, in describing well, it. Well, some people have a problem uh, because I, I don't show the deference to authority that uh, many members have come to uh, believe is essential to a member of the church. I embrace the doctrines and the teachings as received through Joseph Smith, and I'm, I'm willing to embrace any modern revelation, but we don't seem to have been receiving any. So I don't, I, I, I don't feel it's necessary to hold allegiance to men unless they are speaking the words that God has put into their mouth. Let's uh, let's begin, if you can just take us back a little bit, maybe uh, for my listeners, describe a little bit of your 
your growing up in the church so they can kind of get a feel for who you are? Okay, well, I was raised in the Anaheim First Ward uh, most of my life. When I was eight, my father, who was a Marine, transferred to Hawaii, so we uh, moved to Kailua Second Ward for three years and then back to Anaheim. By the time we got back to Anaheim, we were in uh, we were in a stake center, newly built stake center. It was a great uh, great time to grow up in the church. I was born the year that President McKay uh, became president, and I graduated high school the same year, 1970, that he died. So uh, it was a I think it was a good time. He was a he was a very libertarian man. He brought the church into the 20th century, and uh, he eliminated or was eliminating a lot of the authoritarian things that the church had become since the time of Brigham Young. Uh, the way I view the church, uh, uh, there are several phases, but to make it short, uh, during the time of Joseph Smith, the, the, the church was a religion where there weren't a lot of rules. Essentially, the love of Christ ruled. Uh, and then uh, when Brigham Young took, took the reins, we went into sort of an authoritarian phase and stayed that way through the 1890s and then at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, things got even more firm, and then by the time President uh, McKay came in, uh, we stepped into the 20th century, and he was he was a good figurehead to have in the church because he was uh, he he conveyed a very loving attitude rather than a, a, a you know a ruling. He didn't come off as a ruler; he came off as someone who was. Uh, an emissary of Christ. So it was a good time. Uh, participated in road shows, state dances, all the things a teenager does, and uh, that's what I liked about the church, and that's what the church was to me. And so on my mission, interestingly enough, and I didn't realize this until I back, of course I thought I was bringing people to Christ, but my real goal was to introduce people to the same denomination I belonged to. That was that was the way I saw it. And baptisms meant bringing people into the church, you know, we use the term "we baptize so and so," or we or so and so join the church as as uh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Interchangeable terms. You know, when we say, "Oh, he joined the church," meaning he was baptized, and so uh, that's the way I looked at the church. I was gonna say almost almost creating a uh, understanding that the path to salvation was only through the church in this life rather than the acceptance in effort to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Exactly. And this is what, uh, you know, I was raised in a day when people were bearing their testimonies to the church. I know the church is true. I know this. And so the church was the focus. And this is one, one of the things I liked about your interview with Brad Wilcox, is he and others like him, uh, Dieter Uchtdorf and Stephen Robinson and uh, uh, Robert Mellet, they're... They seem to be reintroducing a Christ-centered gospel to the church that's been missing for some time. We have been a church-centered church for a long time, and, and uh, we we have gotten away from being Christ-centered. Now, if you asked anybody if this was true, of course, we'd all deny it. But I, I would have, too. But the fact of the matter is, we were more Christ, we have been more church-centered than Christ-centered, and we even we have teachings in the church that most of us embrace that, that say things like there's safety in following the brethren, there's safety in the church, uh, and that's not I, I don't I don't see anywhere in Scripture where the Lord has asked us to have a testimony of the church. Right, right. So where'd you serve your mission at? I served my mission, the Missouri Independence Mission, which was a great place for me because I was already by that time a, a church history buff. 
I, I went out when I was 21. I hadn't had any inclination at 19, but at 21, I, I felt the call. So I put in my papers and I was delighted. I, the only thing better than being sent where I was sent would have been to be sent to Nauvoo itself. All right. So knowing that your views are unconventional, we'll get into a lot of those here in a little bit, but you seem to have a very uh, traditional LDS uh, upraising, uh, growing up in the church. You serve a mission. You you kind of take on the same philosophy or views that that the average church member would have. What caused uh, things to change for you? Well, you know, I I really don't know. I never had a crisis of faith like a lot of people do, and I think I I can attribute that to the fact that I was reading it. But by the time I was in institute, I noticed. Uh, a new publication that I had not been aware of. It was called Dialogue in the Journal of Mormon Thought. It was an academic journal about Mormonism. And I was fascinated by that. There was a, I, I started with a, a, an issue that was dedicated to Nauvoo, which was a, a big interest of mine. This was before my mission, of course. And in those days, uh, Dialogue was found in institute libraries and church libraries everywhere. There was a time somewhere in the 80s, I guess, where the church decided that it was not faith-promoting. Some of the things in there were not faith-promoting. But I found it interesting because um, it was a place where Mormons could discuss Mormonism with one another outside the official organs of the church. And, and that's appropriate because uh, the church magazines, like the Ensign, and before that, what was it called? The, the Era, the, whatever it was called, uh, those organs, just like any corporate, are, are going to put the... Uh, the institution in the most favorable light. But there was a need for people to talk about those things that were difficult in church history or theologically, and uh, that gave me a, a great a great way to, to view the church without... Uh, I, I found most of these things, some stone also, are faith-promoting, whereas, uh, you know, in later days, a lot of people, uh, especially leaders, felt that they were damaging the faith, but I didn't see it like that at all. And of course I was aware that uh, through dialogue that uh, in the early days of the church, in the early Utah days, uh, you could you could have a difference of opinion with the president of the church if you wanted to. Orson Pratt would get up in conference and he would say something, he would teach something and then Brigham Young would stand up after him and say, Orson Pratt was full of hooey and here's why. And then Orson Pratt would get up and say, Brigham Young is full of hooey and here's why. And so they had differences of opinion that, that was okay. And the members weren't aghast and appalled and uh, it was a it was a religion where you could talk about, about the religion. Uh, whereas today, you go to church and there are certain things that you know, you automatically know you have to self-censor yourself about. There are there are points of view that are accepted within the, the church and there are points of view that we just don't talk about at church, but we'll talk about them on the Internet. So that's why the Internet is valuable, and, and sadly sometimes church seems very uh, constricting. Kind of going back to your thoughts on Sunstone and Dialogue, you found those to be, to be very faithful, and like you say, the church at some point didn't see it that way. I wonder sometimes if some of the trouble we get into, you go in the, the days of the Enzyme of, of 30 years ago, uh, 20 years ago even, there was a section where every month there would be this ask a question. And some of these questions would revolve around difficult issues like the Book of Abraham or Joseph translating with a seer stone, for instance. And then we hit this phase of correlation and this seeing sunstone and dialogue as almost enemies of the church. I almost wonder for my generation if part of the problem is is that 
for we spent so many years never even talking about these tough issues, not realizing that someday here comes the internet and we're going to hit have them hitting us in the face regardless. Yeah, you know, um, I think the church was trying to control the flow of information, and they were quite successful because if you were a standard member, you were you got your doctrine from the uh, the manuals and nowhere else. But with the with the onset of the internet, now a lot of people especially the younger people, are being hit with things for the first time. A, a good example of what I learned through dialogue was Armin Moss had done a, a lengthy article. He tried. He was researching the uh, origins of the priesthood ban, because we all assumed, you know, we were all... I'm, I was in college here now by 1970, and then after my mission again, and that was the big hot issue, that Mormons were bigots against blacks, and so we... We had this standard belief that, uh, that we don't know why, but this is the way the Lord put it. That this is the way the Lord wanted. And anyway, and Mouse's article in Dialogue, he showed that there was actually no basis. This was just a practice that had been adopted. And it was, uh, you know, Brigham Young was a product of his time. I mean, many people, uh, he wasn't alone. This was a, a standard, basic Christian belief in many denominations that, that the black race was inferior and that they were descended from Cain. But the point is, there were no, there was no revelation. And so the question had always been, well, Joseph Smith had, had ordained the black man Elijah Abel, and that was sort of seen by most of us as, well, that was sort of a mistake Joseph made. We don't know why he did it. Maybe he wasn't looking closely or something. But whatever it was, the actual doctrine in our minds was that, that the uh, black race was inferior, and they, they were the mark of Cain. And, uh, and then this assumption, you know, speculation ran wild. And one of the primary speculations was that, that people who came to this earth and, and attained black skins were somehow those in the pre-existent who were less valiant than the rest. Now, that also was not doctrine. It was just somebody thought that might be the explanation. But these things began to be associated with the actual truth. So Armin Maus discovered and documented that, no, there was never any... This is just sort of what we did. And so uh, it was high time for that to be reversed. And by the way, in the... Greg Prince's great biography of David O. McKay, he tells how David O. McKay had also uh, set a couple of guys to research the question and found no basis for this belief. And he wanted to reverse it, but he couldn't get enough votes in the quorum. He would have had to have all the 12 apostles support him, and they wouldn't, so he had to drop that. So we could have, we could have reversed it long ago. Yeah, there seems like there's a long period of time of kind of going back and forth between thinking of it as a policy and thinking of it as a doctrine. I wanted to ask you, too, you, you kind of imply that by reading Sunstone and Dialogue, say that you never had any crisis of faith. One of the questions I want to ask is, if you've been active in the church your whole life, or did you have bouts of inactivity due to this kind of change of philosophy? No, I was actually active all my life, and I bought into a lot of the mainstream. Uh, uh, you know, McConkie was a hero of mine. Uh, in fact, uh, I carried Mormon doctrine. This is around 1970. I carried it with me to church. And so that would there be maybe some dispute in priesthood, and I'd be back there and back flipping to the topic, and I would announce, uh, here's the actual truth the way the way bar bets were settled in in Ireland with the with the Guinness Book of World Records you know and so I I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that the prophet was infallible even though that wasn't our doctrine that was that was a very common belief that uh, the, the, the prophet could do no wrong and I also uh, 
I went through a phase, and I, I've talked to others, a lot of people have gone through this. I went through this phase where I had decided I'm not going to read anything except books that are published by uh, by general authorities. That was going to be the only thing I read in my life. And then I let myself expand that to anything sold by Deseret Book. But anyway, that didn't last long. Uh, uh, but but that's how hardcore I was. I was... Uh, there was... Uh, I, I kind of believed in McConkie's My Way or the Highway uh, version of Mormonism, that there were doctrines that must be followed and obeyed, and anything else, uh, you know, you're off the path. Now, of course, I look at things differently now. Uh, the way I look at doctrine is anything revealed by God. We are allowed to speculate all we want about things that don't really matter, but there are the core... And, and I think you brought this up when you were discussing... Uh, Having a conversation with Brad Wilcox, there are there are core fundamentals that that we all accept, and and then uh, there are side issues that you know you can take or leave, and so we're allowed we're allowed to believe pretty much anything we want under pure Mormonism, but the the authoritarian brand of Mormonism introduces something else, which is that uh, you know there there are only certain doctrines, and we're not to go any further. And the irony is most of most of that brand of thinking is speculation. It isn't doctrine. No, you make a good point. The what I've always tried to go by is I I take the thirteen articles of faith and I hold those to be kind of the framework of, of my belief system. I uh, I take the temple questions seriously and so I use those to form my framework. And then obviously I look at the scriptures as well. And and then aside from and even in the scriptures, right, we understand scripture not necessarily to be truth. We, we have Paul, for instance, talking about how women should just be quiet and not speak in the church. Yeah, yeah. And so it's scripture, but is it doctrine? Or is Paul simply speaking as a man who's not married and probably needs a little yeah. more experience in the exactly. world? Exactly. Did, did God tell him to say that? And Now, there are many uh, Bible scholars who believe that those were some of the things that were added that weren't even written by Paul. They were added by monks who were doing translations. So this is why it's very difficult to tell in the Bible what's what's from the Lord and what isn't. But when you look at things like that, you have to ask yourself, okay, does that sound like something that Jesus would uh, would promote? No, it isn't. Right. Let's get into a few of the things that you've written about. The, uh, the first one that caught my eye was the one uh, titled Alms and Offerings, where you speak at great length about tithing. Uh, and I found the post to be quite interesting. And if I can just briefly maybe talk about what it, uh, what it, at least how I took it, and then you can kind of expound a little bit. You, uh, you talk about the scriptures on tithing, even the church's official statements on tithing, which essentially say that it is 10% of our increase. And the church says that really, as members of the church, we don't really have a right to expound on it beyond that. And yet in the church culture, we've made it, we've set some definitions outside of that at times. Would you mind expounding a little bit? Yeah, I should point out that of alms and offerings only touches on that. But in that piece, that's my present piece. And by the time this podcast posts, I think there will be something else up. But I, I elaborated on tithing in a piece called, Are We Paying Too Much Tithing? And I think that's an, an exact, a perfect example of how we take doctrine and we reject the doctrine and we've, we, have allowed to grow up around the actual doctrine or to displace the actual doctrine um, beliefs that were not given to us by the Lord. Now, the law of tithing is contained in section 119. It's called the law because it's procedural. It's, it's the direction. It tells us what tithing is, how much to be paid, what it's to go for. 
But over time, I think, uh, you know, these things begin because somebody will bear their testimony and say, you know, I've received a lot of blessings from paying our tithing. And then uh, somebody else will stand up and say, instead of paying tithing on my on just my increase, and by the way, increase, uh, I, I went to great lengths to, to describe increase, income, surplus. These are all words that were synonymous in the 19th century. Today, since 1913, the definition of income in the popular mind has changed, but it remains the way it was in, in legal contemplation and in the dictionaries of the time. It simply meant that which was left over after one's basic expenses have been covered. So your food, your rent, your you know your mortgage, your, your your farm implements, all those things were covered. And then at the end of the year, what you had left over, that was your increase, and you paid tithing on that. So you paid 10% of that, of just what was left over. You didn't pay 10% of everything you brought in, and you certainly didn't pay it every month as it came in. And the reason for that, the reason the Lord made tithing so simple and so small was so that the one reason was he didn't want the church to become this giant behemoth that that had all this money uh, and, you know, it became a, a, an investment factory. So tithing was intended to meet the basic expenses of the church. But on top of that, that was the little bit we're supposed to pay. Now, after that, we're supposed to pay a lot more in alms and offerings. So our our charitable giving to those in need should be much, much greater than what we what we provide for the basic operations of the church. And that's where we have been falling short. Most people feel that they're doing their job when they pay tithing. They think of that as their charitable giving, and, and they don't think much beyond that. They might toss off a few dollars for a fast offering, but they don't see their their obligation to give directly to the poor as as a major one. And that's where the commandment is. The law of tithing is a procedural law. The law of, of giving an alms, that, that's an actual commandment. And so we've sort of turned it on its head, and my piece entitled, Are We Paying Too Much Tithing, was intended to document and show exactly where we're wrong. We're preaching, we're teaching lots of false doctrines. So, uh, getting back, trying to get back to the core question, the only doctrinal statement we have since on the law of tithing is, was made in 1970 by the First Presidency, and it's been established that only the First Presidency can establish doctrine. So we can read, we can hear things from the pulpit, we can read things in the ensign, you know, and the, the, the December issue of the ensign um, promoted a piece where a bishop was telling members of his congregation that if you can't pay your rent, if you don't have the money to pay your rent, pay your tithing. If you don't have the money to feed your family, you still should pay your tithing. You should do all these first. And that's contrary to all the teachings that were were spoken from the pulpit back in the 19th century. I, I did find it interesting that as you talk about, the official statement is tithing is 10% of your increase, which we understand to mean income, and no one is authorized to essentially add to or take away from that statement. And then I, then I turn to the manual, and the manual tells me that I'm to, to, to pay on the gross, mm-hmm. and it almost seems like the manual itself oversteps the bounds of what the First Presidency exactly. said, which is, which is none of us are to expound on what it is. And, and their last sentence in their statement is, we leave it up to each member of the church uh, prayerfully between them and the Lord to figure out what is an honest and fair tithing. Exactly. So that doctrine, which stood in 1970, I believe at the time Joseph Ealing Smith was the prophet, that doctrine, which is very basic, how much do you pay? 
10% on your increase. When do you pay it? Annually. No one is justified in making any statement other than this. That's, that's pretty clear. And like you say, people continue to make these statements and, and, the, and even general authorities, uh, will, will go up on the stand and say things that are extraneous to the actual law of tithing. So this is why I'm born, and it's kind of been my thing to sort of figure out what's actually doctrine in the church and what are these things, these cultural myths that we have allowed to glom on to the doctrine. Mormonism is a wonderful, pure, and simple religion when it's when it's in its purity. But all these things that we've added to it that are not doctrinal tend to turn it into a pharisaical, rule-based religion, and that that's sort of what I'm trying to get away from. And my blog is, as I said before, the purpose of my blog is just sort of one process of my repent my own repentance. I'm looking at the things I used to practice and the things I used to believe, and I'm saying, okay, I was in error here, and here's why, and here's what the actual doctrine is. And it's interesting that every now and then somebody will come along and just really object uh, to what I'm saying. Just the other day, uh, somebody said, to all members of the LDS Church, be very, very cautious in, in what you read on this blog and others like it. This, uh, this is twisting and uh, this is giving a, a twisted and accurate portrayal of the church so i wrote back and i said if you can show show where i'm inaccurate or or undoctrinal please let me know because these these objections they don't ever they don't ever seem to come back and say what it is that they object to but i try to be very careful in in only expounding on what's actually doctrinal but it, it rubs some people the wrong way it, it so help me you know i'm right it flies in the face of what they've learned over the years from their bishops or their their Sunday school teachers or you know a lesson. seminary teachers, institute teachers, and just just conversations. You know, I can remember that just we Mormons, just us teenagers, would just talk about things uh, and wonder and guess. And these things somehow have come to be accepted as doctrine. These things that we just sort of guessed about. So, so I'm I'm trying to find what what's actually the truth and scrape off all these particles. But like you say, this just shows how entrenched our conditioning is. When we've come to believe things that aren't true, we'll hang on to the vain traditions of our fathers uh, rather than look at the Book of Mormon. And I'll, I'll, let me say something about the Book of Mormon. Damon Smith is uh, about to release a book called A Cultural History of the Book of Mormon. He, he advocates that we need to really just put aside everything that we assume because... A lot of the a lot of the assumptions we make. Well, let me put it this way: the Book of Mormon is very, very clear on our relationship to Christ, on how important grace is, and forgiveness, and repentance, and all these wonderful things, and how how easy it really is to be a believer. So our doctrine states it very clearly, but we don't pay attention to that. We pay more attention to the things that we have learned in church, and so we've or or, or taught in seminary, or these assumptions that aren't true. So we ignore the actual doctrine in favor of the things that we that tickle our ears. I guess those uh, my listeners will appreciate this. Those who struggle with doubts, those who come across the tough issues and try to figure out their way through it. The first thing you're going to have to be able to do if you're going to survive through that and make it out the other side is to be able to look at those assumptions and expectations that you that you create, that others create for you through their teaching, and you're going to have to be able to disassemble, disassemble that and put it all back together in a way that works. And, and I feel bad for people 
you know, I'm not going to say I agree with every single thing you've got on your blog, Rock, but I think you certainly approach things from a way of disassembling it, trying to figure out really what is what is at the root of the core of those teachings and doctrines and, and try to put it back together. And I think those in crisis have to do the same thing with, with some of the tough issues that uh, are in the history of the church or, or in our theology. Um, so I appreciate that. I think you, you hit it on the head. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, too, because I'm not out to convert people to my way of thinking. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not out to uh, start my own church or anything like that. And I've been accused of that. What are you trying to do to start your own church? Or what, what would you do to fix the church? Uh, all I'm saying is the, the church and the gospel are two separate things. And uh, one of the things problems we've had is conflating the two and and. You know, people talk about the church as if when they, when the, what they mean is their religion. They're talking about the religion. But here's the thing: I'm sharing things I'm finding as I go along, uh, or that have that I found in the past. I'm not saying this is the doctrine. Believe me. So I appreciate the fact that that you say there are things that you don't fully embrace, and I think that word embrace is a is a key one because I think more important. To look at the doctrines and the, and the truths and embrace the truth rather than to, to feel like we have to know the truth. Most of us have somehow, uh, felt that, that a testimony isn't a good testimony unless you stand up there and say, I know such and such. Well, I don't know the things that I used to think I know. I don't know that the first vision occurred the way it did. I don't know, but I embrace and I accept many things and I'm willing to change my thinking as, as I get more input, both from uh, intellectually and from the Holy Ghost. As Elder Holland would say, we're leading with faith. Yeah. Uh, even in the midst of not knowing. That's great. I want to move on to a couple other ones. You uh, you wrote a, uh, a post or a thread about corporate Mormonism, and at the core of it, essentially, what you spoke at was the church getting away from the way in which it operated, say, in the New Testament, or even early in uh, the Restoration, and and has become more of a, a corporation in the way that it behaves and, 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 to be honest, the way it legally has set itself up. So your thoughts on that, uh, that one? Well, the, the first century Christians gathered together in one another's homes for a reason. They wanted to be together with like-minded people. Uh, that church was different from what we consider our restored church. Even in those days, God gave different gifts, as I think it's in Ephesians or Thessalonians. He gave some prophets, some apostles, some pastors, teachers. So everybody had their little their little role. But what we've done now, we have a corporate. Uh, we, we actually converted the church in 1923 from a church to a corporation. And now we have a top-down top hierarchy. Uh, and it... I think not too many people would would uh, object to the description that there are leaders at the top and the rest of us are here at the bottom and we take our orders. So it's more like a, a, a military uh, ranking than, than what it should be, a, a church of equals. Uh, I see people all the time saying we should never dispute or or ask questions about what the brethren say because they are in charge. And they're, in, my, in my view, they... They are only inspired when they're when they're moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And so, when God puts words in the prophet's mouth, that's when 
that's when I'll sit up and take notice. But if he's expressing his opinion, it might be a good one, and it might be something I agree with, but it's not necessarily doctrine. I'll give you a quick example. When President Hinckley, he was speaking to a group of youth, and he was wondering out loud, why would anybody, why would any woman want more than one earring in her ear? Why would she want all these earrings? Why would, why would you young men want all these body piercings and tattoos? Well, I agree with him, you know. Uh, that's my point of view also. I don't like a lot of piercings. Uh, I don't care for tattoos, but somehow that simple statement got carried off into doctrine, and it became something that that was used to judge whether a person was uh, was uh, faithful or not. Was whether uh, if a if a girl had two piercings in her ear, then she was clearly not following the prophet, and therefore she was not a godly person. So that sort of thing. These are these musings out loud. We, we got to be careful about translating those into the word of the Lord. That's not the word of the Lord. I gave a lesson a, a few weeks back in our ward where we talked at length about following the Spirit and recognizing that leaders, you know, and a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. And, and as you added, when do we know when he's acting as such? Well, when the Holy Ghost bears witness that that's the case. So seeing that that is the way the doctrine is uh, laid out, I then said, okay, so does this mean when... When the president of the church or the quorum of the twelve apostles, uh, in and of themselves, get up and teach something, do we have to right away go and follow it? And uh, several people in that class raised their hand and said, "Yep, absolutely. If they mm-hmm. say it, I do it. I trust them enough that that's you know, if they said it, I'm gonna go and do it." And I laid out the quote from Brigham Young right there and said, "Well, brother, brother Brigham Young said uh, he was fearful that the the elders of the church would just start going and doing everything that the leaders taught rather than going back and getting a confirmation." And then there was also the uh, the quote from Elder Christofferson uh, three conferences ago where he talked about Brigham Young coming out in the morning of a general conference and teaching one thing and then coming out in the afternoon session and saying, hey, Brigham Young taught this morning. Now let's hear what the Lord has to say on the subject. Mm-hmm. And even after sharing those, they still felt like, you know, aside from that, I, we still should follow general authorities in everything they say no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we do well, that? Well, we still we still love to hang on to our vain traditions, and I think I think people want to take the easy way, and uh, it's important to realize that the doctrine that the prophet can never lead the church astray was never spoken by the Lord. The Lord never revealed this through a prophet. He never said, "Thus saith the Lord." The, the prophet can never lead the church astray. This isn't doctrine, and it's one of the false doctrines. And one of the damaging things about it is it tends to just like your your fellow members, they said, that's good enough for me. If the prophet said, that's good enough to me. But we're instructed by the Lord to take the words. So, for example, we listen to conference talk. We're to take that and take that to the Lord and get confirmation. Is this, is this actually spoken by the Spirit? Now, in my personal opinion, I don't consider a talk that's read off a teleprompter, uh, and it was probably ghostwritten by a staff member, as something that, that uh, was delivered when moved upon by the Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. You can tell when someone is moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And most conference talks don't fall into that category for me. Now, do they, are they preaching false doctrine on the whole? No. About 90, 95% of what I've heard in conference, I fully agree with and is fully doctrinal. But then little things creep in, like uh, these ideas of what tithing is and, and how important it is to pay it no matter what, uh, before you pay any of your bills. These little these little things, and, and and the suggestion that's fairly recent that it might be a good idea to pay double tithing 
because you get double blessings. These sorts of things start creeping up in conference. And, yeah, you know, if people don't take this to, to the Lord and get a witness from the Holy Ghost, they're going to accept it at face value. And that's why people, when somebody like me comes along and, and I, I say, well, this is what the Lord actually said, that's rejected. Because what the Lord said is less important to some members than what their leaders have told them. Right. And, and when we look at um, different things that have been said over the years in regards to the age of the earth, um, comments on evolution, comments on the uh, blacks before they received the priesthood, um, thoughts on what the, who the great abominable church is, uh, those kinds of things. You're right. If we take leaders at face value rather than using the Holy Ghost as a, a medium uh, to confirm those things, it becomes all too easy to get off track. Well, can I, let me just say this, Bill. I, I think also that this is where where we fall under condemnation of the Lord because we are ignoring his instruction to ask him and to seek his counsel. And and it's very, I think it's, it's not just bad form for us to accept at face value what the leaders say just because they have a, a calling and an office and a title. It's, it's dangerous, it, and it's what's poisoned the church, and it's what's driven so many out of the church. Like I said before, the pure Mormonism that was restored through Joseph Smith, there's very little you can find to object to in there. But today, people... You know, by the tens of thousands every year are leaving the church because the way the church appears today is, uh, contra- it contradicts common sense and, and their gut feelings. And unfortunately, and I say this unfortunately, although I, I, I allow any man to make his own choices, but in a way it's unfortunate that they're leaving rather than just simply looking at the basic core fundamentals and say, you know what, there's really nothing here to object to. Right. Right, that's a great point. Part of it is, though, we teach kind of a, a double message, and I get it. We we don't want the entire church just minimizing what the leaders say and not taking those things that they say seriously. So we have songs in primary like "Follow the Prophet," mm-hmm. right? Follow the prophet, follow the prophet. He knows the way. You know, again and again, he you know you won't go astray. That, that song, by the way. That song was completely unknown when I was in primary. I think people would have been aghast at it. Joseph Smith would have been aghast. But today it's, it's taught to the children. I'm sorry, go on. No, that's okay. And, and so I get it. Doctrinally, if we go back, we certainly have a, a plethora of statements from church leaders that say, hey, look, don't take anything we say and assume it's coming directly from the mouth and it's the will of the Lord, yeah. but to consult the Holy Ghost. But on the other end... We do have things in our manuals. We do have songs we sing. We do have things we do that also set up that opposite teaching. We almost seem to to kind of do it both ways. And I yeah. get it. I get it. Part of it is, you know, the song Follow the Prophet. We do want people, when the prophet's speaking as a prophet, to follow him and to, to take that counsel. If we don't, we we don't build our ark when the rain's about to come. We're going to have a problem. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it would be important to... Uh, to take heed of the words of the prophet when he's when the Lord is putting his words in the prophet's mouth. But that happens so rarely these days that uh, that I find it almost non-existent. But but that's beside the point. The point that you're making is we should we should pay heed, but we also at the same time need to realize there are qualifications. Yeah. And the, and and we're not seeing these anymore uh, in, in the official yeah. teachings. We're not told uh, be careful. Right, let the Holy Ghost be the buffer. Exactly. You, one of the articles you wrote that got the most attention out of me, I thought this one, I actually had, I looked at it, I read it, I turned away and had to do a double take. 
you had the one written on the temple wedding. And it started off with skip the temple, uh, skip the temple and go get married out, you know, basically go get married outside the temple. And, uh, would you mind expounding on that? When I first read, I thought, oh boy, this is. Yeah, I think, I think my actual wording was, you know, I'm, Within the first paragraph, I was advising young couples not to get married in the temple. And then my next sentence was, by all means, get sealed in the temple. But your marriage and your sealing are two different things. It used to be in the Doctrine and Covenants until it was taken out in 1878. It was the doctrine, the official doctrine of the church, and Joseph Smith made no bones about it. He said, the, the I'm trying to recall his exact words, but he said some of the effect that the proper mode of marriage in this church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to be in a public place or feast for the purpose. Now, that's the doctrine, okay? Now, a ceiling is something else entirely. Somehow, in beginning in the 60s, we began to conflate the two, and it began to be seen that the only proper wedding was a temple wedding. But a temple wedding isn't a wedding. A temple, a temple ceiling is a ceiling. So we're supposed to get married first, and we're supposed to do it in public. It's one of the, throughout history, it was one of the primary purposes of a church. Uh, one of the reasons people gather together, to celebrate the wedding. Children are there, nephews, nieces, everybody's present. But now we do it away from everybody, and, and uh, I've received a lot. That, that, that one piece has received more uh, readership than anything else I've done. And I've heard lots of comments that it's been discussed on other boards and forums and everywhere. I see people saying, if I had it to do over again, I would have been married civilly first. You know, I made a mistake by excluding my family. These are things that, that you know, my family has never forgiven the church for, for keeping, you know, my, my parents out and so on. I've never seen anybody who said, actually once, I saw, I saw one person who said, my temple wedding was wonderful. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, but, but this was somebody who didn't have family that needed to be excluded. And so this is this is a prime example of a doctrine we have adopted where we have we have just completely thrown away the actual doctrine and we we now do something that is not written anywhere. It's just an assumption. It's something we are taught that we need to be temple worthy. And I and I appreciate that. I think that's where it came from. Because uh in my parents' day, my, although my parents were only a, a an hour away from the L.A. Temple. They chose to be married civilly where his parents could be... They had a church wedding. His parents were present. His marine buddies were present. And then they got married in the temple. I mean, they got sealed in the temple. That's the way it's supposed to be. You got a marriage, and then you seal that marriage for time and all eternity. Right, right. A wedding is... Uh, is a feast. It's a it's a get together. It's a it's a wondrous occasion to spend time. I uh, I don't. I want to be careful how I word this. I want to share a personal story, but I, I certainly don't want to come out against the policy that's in place. But there's several thoughts I have. One, as a convert to the church at the age of 17, I got married at the age of 19 in the Washington D.C. temple, and and that that covenant that I made there with my spouse for all of eternity was beautiful. It was great. And so I. It was a, a, a wondrous occasion for me. The trouble was is that as a convert to the church and the only member of my family, my mother and my father, my brother, and any other close family couldn't go. And you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head when you say that it causes hard feelings. My mom to this day is still bitter uh, about that. And I've tried to explain it. And I see why the, the one-year wait is in place. I think in part it was it's done to 
form this allegiance to to the gospel. There's this sacrifice that's involved in doing this at times. And often I think we look at people who go and get married outside the temple. We almost have this uh, behind-the-scenes thoughts of them being sinful, and that's why they didn't. Mm-hmm. We've, we've created some cultural... It, it would be a beautiful thing if we didn't have the one-year wait in place. And so that people could go and get married... And as long as they were worthy, could immediately then go to the temple and be sealed. But I think we've driven this dichotomy of making those who go don't go to the temple and get married, it's almost looked at as a sin that they have to wait one year. What's the one year for? Is it to repent? Is it? To- yeah, it's to prove your worthiness, to make sure you attend church every week. You know, someone close to me, uh, they were going to be married in the temple, and it was three days before, and they fell. You know, they couldn't help themselves. So they just kept it to themselves, and they got married in the temple anyway. But that guilt stayed with them for so long that they eventually divorced after having several children. It, it all went back to the felt, the fact that they felt that they had really, really done something bad by, uh, you know, going ahead and getting married in the temple and they weren't worthy. But I think this happens quite a bit because when you're just a couple of days away from your temple wedding, you're not going to announce, that, you know what, guys, everybody, we got to call this off. We've sinned. So people just kind of hold their nose and they go in anyway. And I think that, unfortunately, cheapens the, 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 the ceiling. And, of course, it makes people feel bad. But it's not necessary. It's not only not necessary. Once again, it comes back. This is kind of a hot button issue with me because I just see so much heartbreak about pe- uh, people being married in the temple because they figure that's the, they believe that's what they're supposed to do. When in reality, what they're supposed to do, according to our actual doctrine, is to be married right, in public. Right. And, and you're right. It is an issue that has certainly for converts of the church or, uh, part member families, it is certainly a spot of, uh, of hardness. It certainly is a, a point of hard feelings. And it can, it can drive a wedge even to cause people to be further from the gospel and from the church. And so I, I know I'm not wording it well. I'm yes. trying to flirt yes. with the edge of, of certainly not disagreeing with the church, but also recognizing all the hard feelings that come with the policy. Well, I'll tell you why I have no problem disagreeing with the church. Because anytime policy trumps doctrine, I think we have a problem, and this is why I'm so outspoken about this. We should never allow the policy to take precedence over over the actual doctrine. And the actual doctrine is in this church of Jesus Christ, all weddings are performed in a public place. Right, yeah. Um, I did see somewhere on your blog that you are a fan of the Heartland model. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm persuaded to that view now. Uh, more than the Central American and, and the South American model. Uh, it just seems to make more sense. For one thing, this is what Joseph Smith talked about mostly. He, he talked about these Book of Mormon occurrences happening in that area, the Great Lakes, Ohio, Illinois. And that seems to be where the evidence is now. And you seem, and you, so that would mean that the, the Hill Cumorah in New York is the actual Hill Cumorah mentioned in the Book of Mormon, correct? Yeah, we've had to bend over backwards to try and, uh, and try and make two Cumorahs fit. You know, because there's the Camorra. Clearly, there must have been a Camorra in South America if that's where the Nephites and Lamites lived. But then, how did it get? You know, how how you know what did Moroni trek all the way up to uh, upstate New York? So they've had to, you know, people holding the the South American theory have had to deal with inconsistencies like that. But you know, the uh, the the North American model works very well. Even in my own youth, it was very common to go out 
in the wilderness, and you could find arrowheads and spearheads. And farmers talk about this, uh, you know, their lands, before they could plow the land, they had to just pick up wheelbarrows full of spearheads and arrowheads. And then when they plowed the land, they found it wasn't good for crops because there was too much lime in the soil. And lime is evidence of, uh, of decomposing bones. Gotcha. And the reason we don't find a lot, because all these bones were left out in the uh, in the open. Well, bones that are left out in the open disintegrate and blow away. Uh, a good example is all the buffalo, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of buffalo. They were killed just for their hide, and then the carcasses were left. But we have photos of, of buffalo carcasses simply, what's left of their bones simply disintegrating and disappearing. So they're... they're there's no inconsistency with wondering, well, how did this big uh, battle take place at the Hill Camorra if there's no evidence of, of weapons and bones? Well, there was plenty of evidence of weapons, and the bones are all gone, and the evidence is the lime in the soil. Neat. Um, it is a kind of an interesting debate in the church. Those who are uh, new to these kinds of issues being discussed in Mormonism may have grown up with the thought that the Book of Mormon took place over all of North and South America, but once we read the Book of Mormon and, and really start to delve into it, we realize that it covers a small space of land. And and then we kind of have now gotten to this point where we kind of debate these two areas, one being the Heartland model, which is uh, kind of Ohio, New York, Pennsylvania, those types of areas. And and then we've got um, the, the Central America, Mesoamerican model. And, and both aren't perfect. Both have some... Uh, f- flaws to them, and there's also a lot of things that each can kind of point out as ways to see it and make things fit, so it, it certainly makes for an interesting debate. Um, I want to kind of wrap up with just a couple thoughts on faith crisis and uh, and then give you a chance if you've got any kind of final words for us. You said earlier you didn't have a faith crisis yourself, that you, in your mind of exploring things and, and wanting new information, you came upon all these things gradually and early, and folks today who aren't doing a lot of reading are encountering tough issues in one after the other all of a sudden after a lifetime of forming false assumptions and expectations. Any suggestions for those who, who do that, who struggle, and how to put things back well, together? I, yeah, I, I think the thing to do is to look for the core the core teachings. Now, I, we have doctrine and we have dogma. And the way I, I define dogma as rigid belief that can't be changed, and that's usually... Uh, these are usually things that God didn't put in our path. I don't, I don't believe God is dogmatic. God teaches us things and he gives us the option to accept or reject, but he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't condemn us overall simply because we don't want to accept a certain belief. But, but I, I think most of the problems in the church come from beliefs that have, that God didn't teach us. So when you look at the core fundamentals, which is essentially, pure Mormonism is is nothing more than pure Christianity. You know, be kind to one another. Uh, I I don't see where there's a problem. But yeah, are there problems when we drifted? Yeah. But if you look at those and say, well, that's what the church believes, and I'm going to reject them. Well, the well the church doesn't. Okay, the church teaches that maybe, but the Lord didn't teach that. So if we will embrace those things the Lord taught, I don't. I don't see any problems with their religion. You know, when, when you look at the reason the uh, the uh, 
Missourians and, and the problems that our enemies had with us in the early church, it wasn't because of doctrines. They didn't care about the Book of Mormon. They didn't care about what we believed. They were bothered because we were we were coming in and we were buying up their land and we were threatening them and telling them that that we're going to take over your land and things like that. And and we were a large political block. But when you when you if if you start to look for what is it that that would make people so angry they would want to kill Mormons. It doesn't have anything to do with, with the things that the Lord taught. Right, right. Rock Waterman, host or owner or, um, what's the, what's the word I should use? Creator? Proprietor. Proprietor. Okay, so Rock Waterman, <laughs> proprietor of the blog, puremormonism.blogspot.com. Rock, any final thoughts from you before we uh, kind of conclude the interview? Yeah, you know, I was thinking recently, uh, an example of how I was living my religion, that most people wouldn't have thought that, occurred last weekend. My my daughter was over here helping me do some housework, and as I was driving her home down Marconi Avenue, which is a pretty main thoroughfare in this area, Sacramento, um, she spotted a kid selling lemonade, a little kid sitting at a lemonade stand. She said, oh, Dad, there's a... So I sell lemonade. Well, I said, oh, I didn't see him. And it's too late to turn around. She said, Dad, you taught me never, you know, never to pass up a chance to help a kid selling lemonade. So she said, I said, yeah, you're right. So it, it took quite a bit of effort to get back there. But we pulled in, and uh, as we pulled in, there's this kid. He's about six years old. He's sitting behind a table. And he's got a big pitcher here, and he's got some other things on the table. And Amy gives him the thumbs up as we're pulling in, and, he gets excited and he turns to where his mother is in the garage and he says something. He's all excited. So we come up to him and, and kid, cute little kid. He, he had an easel out by the, by the street and he could barely write. So he had some scribblings on there and it was just cute as can be. And so we asked him how much, how much is a cup of lemonade? And he said it's a dollar. So we said, okay, we'll have two of them. I looked in my pocket and I said, all I got is ten dollars. He said, okay. And I said, no, no, what I mean is, do you have change for $10? Now, his mother, who's trying to keep her distance because she wants this to be his little deal, um, she comes and she she says, yeah, there's some money in the house, and she tells him where to go. And so he goes in the house. And and so while he's in there, I said, so how's business been? Is, is he selling all the lemonade? She says, nobody's come. You're the first people. And he, they'd been out there for a couple of hours. And the kid, his mother had brought him lunch of grapes and a sandwich. He's sitting there with... All these expectations. And I think we need to remember what it was like to be a little kid. You get this idea, I'm going to have, you know, you see it in the cartoon or somewhere. I'm going to have a lemonade stand. I'm going to make a lot of money. And then nobody comes. And this poor little kid was just being crushed. And then here come a couple of people, and we're going to buy some lemonade from him. And now he's all optimistic, and maybe other people will come too. And I've seen this before. I was riding my bike. The few times that I've stopped, uh, that I've seen lemonade, kids selling lemonade, um, I've been the only one. I've been the only customer. And I, there was a residential street. I was riding my bike, and there was a group of kids. Then, you know, they had their big idea, and they have a big sign. And so, so every now and then a car would come by, and the kids would hold up the sign and yell something, and the, and the people in the car would slow down to take a look, and then they'd say, oh, it's just some kids selling lemonade, and they'd drive by. Everybody driving by and passing. That kid, sorry, I got emotional about this because I could see how that poor little kid, he had all these dreams of making money and nobody shows up. And this is, this happens time and again. And we could, we could, all we have to do 
as we're driving by is show a little kindness. And, you know, I, I know what's going through people's minds. They're thinking, I'm not thirsty or I don't want some lemonade made by a kid who maybe didn't wash his hands. Well, neither do I, you know. But I'll go in there and I'll help out. So, okay, so the kid comes out of the house and he's got some dollar bills and he counts them out. My hand, there's only four of them. He says, that's all I have. And his mother says, you know, we, we just don't have any change. I'm sorry. So th this was easy to fix. We just buy $6 worth of product. So he's got some potato chips there, little, these little lunch bag, <coughs> uh, bags of potato chips. So we, we both had a, uh, I had two cups of, of, uh, orange juice and I picked it because it was in a Tropicana bottle. This is stuff he didn't make. I don't want to touch, I don't want lemonade some kid has made with his dirty hands either. So I prefer to, to drink something. The store bought. So I had a couple of cups of that and Amy had something. So there, this, this mother and son are just throwing stuff at us. I mean, well, oh, way more than, they're just trying to give us everything they've got because they're so grateful. I guess the point here is everybody driving by thinking they are good Christians, ignoring an opportunity to just show a little, a little kindness. And that's our religion. That's the whole that's our religion in a nutshell. Just find an opportunity to show some kindness. And instead of passing up a kid, and I, I have to thank my angel daughter for nudging me to do what I, I known was right. Instead of passing up an opportunity to show somebody kindness, somebody, some homeless person with a cardboard sign, always look at that as an opportunity to live your religion. Because without it, we're missing, missing the mark. And by that, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, the definition of sin is simply missing the mark. We sometimes make this big deal about sin and, uh, you know, well, what sins do I have to repent of? Well, we miss the mark every day. And all those people driving by, including me, I was missing the mark. I was committing a sin. And that's something that I could correct by going, stopping, and, and performing a little act of kindness. That's living our religion. That's just... So now this kid, we left this kid, and we didn't take... Anything near what they were offering us, you know. We, they offered us a couple of bottles of water, so we took that. We took four things of chips instead of the eight or ten that they wanted us to have. But now this little kid whose hopes could have been crushed, he's holding a ten-dollar bill and he feels magnificent. But I think about what he, how he would feel if we hadn't stopped and if nobody had stopped. What, what, what impact does inactivity have on people's lives? And so by missing the mark, we could have had, we could have impacted that kid quite negatively. So by, by my, my daughter being inspired to get me to turn around and go back, that was a way that we could live our religion. And it, it makes such a, it's so much better than what we tend to think we need to be doing. We need to attend our meetings, uh, 100%. I don't, I used to believe that Attendance at meetings was the measure of one's um, one's uh, faith, but I don't believe that anymore. And that came because uh, because of circumstances. We Connie and I haven't been able to attend our meetings uh, some some years ago. She well, she's been she's been an invalid for some time, but at one point she was no longer able to attend church, and I had to begin staying home taking care of her. And when I did go back five or six months later, the ward had come over. Well, first off, we lived in a ward that we had just moved in a few months previously. So we only knew, we were only getting to know people. 
And when we left, we weren't missed. But when we came back, the ward had combined, which that's another topic entirely because I can remember a day when wards were splitting. Now wards are combining because uh, their, their size is shrinking. So many people are leaving. So this ward combined, and there were a lot of strangers there. And, and But the interesting thing, I was able to enter that chapel with the eyes of a visitor or a newcomer or a, a, a non-member, and I could see... I could sense the lack of spirit there. I could sense the uh, the lack of excitement. There, people were attending for the same reason I attended all my life, which was because I felt that I should. But in the first century church and in the Nauvoo period, people gathered because they wanted to be with each other. Now we go and we and we attend the meetings and and uh, we attend meetings that that go against our doctrine. Our doctrine and the doctrine and covenants tells us that the two things that stand out for me: number one, that that the uh, the meetings should be conducted by the elder, not the bishop, and secondly, meetings are to be conducted by the spirit. Well, today we think we're conducting them by the spirit, but we're conducting them by a structure that we've been told. We have the opening song, we have the opening prayer, we have two speakers. Closing song, closing prayer, sacrament, and so on. And we do the same with our, in our, uh, classroom meetings. So, I guess what I'm getting to here is, we need to, we need to get, we need to get back to a Christ-centered religion and do, you know, it sounds trite, what would Jesus do? Well, would Jesus pack, pass up a kid selling lemonade? No, of course not. He would go and, and make that kid feel a little bit better about himself. Would, would he feel that Attendance at church is the foremost, most important thing. No, not at all. I don't think. I don't think that attendance. Uh, right now, I att- I attend church very infrequently, and yet I'm more immersed in my religion. I'm more interested in my religion at any time in my life, including during my mission. So, uh, I mean, I know I'm rambling here, Bill, but we're focusing on the pharisaical things. We're Focusing on the checklists, we're, we're we're doing what we're told we're supposed to do, and we're being obedient to our leaders instead of being obedient to Christ. Obedience to Christ is very simple. All He really asks us to do is do unto others as we would have others do unto us. Would we want to have our hopes crushed, like that little kid selling lemonade, or or like any group of kids selling lemonade? Of course we wouldn't. But what a difference Amy and I were able to make in that little kid's life. I mean, his whole day was salvaged. We were saviors. And it's not a trite statement to, to say we're saviors. C.S. Lewis said, The reason for Christianity is so that we can all become little Christs and do the little things that Christ would do if he were here in our stead. Now, I can't heal the sick, but I can certainly I can certainly show, show a little kindness and so I look for every instance. And what makes me, what makes me weep is I see so many of my fellow saints ignoring the opportunities right in front of their eyes all the time. I was standing outside the grocery store some years ago, and this was before I had received my, gotten, you know, experienced the mighty change myself. And at this grocery store, you know, it was an inner city grocery store and some Somebody had come up. I was standing outside chatting with the Relief Society president who I'd run into. And this guy comes up and asks us if we could spare any change. And I dug in my pocket and I gave a quarter, which is the most I ever gave in those days because, uh, you know, 
I wasn't moved to do better. I was more like, oh, yeah, yeah, just get rid of him. So anyway, he goes away. And the other side, he's, the president turns to me and says, oh, I hate when they do that. One of the things I think is just very sad about the City Creek Project is it was deliberately intended to create a buffer zone between the temple and the people who were crowding into that area that were less savory characters. And yet, at the time of Jesus, the place where beggars were supposed to gather was in front of the temple. That was so that the people coming to and from the temple had an opportunity to bless their lives by contributing alms. Now we've driven the poor away from the temple because we don't like what it looks like. We don't like that, uh, we don't like having unsavory characters and smokers sitting and standing around and loitering outside our precious temple. So we're losing our religion. And it saddens me. And, uh, so one of the reasons for my blog is just to help look for opportunities when we can live our religion. And, and sadly, I, I really had intended this blog to be more of an opportunity to radiate love and light, but unfortunately so many times I end up being inspired to pick on somebody. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, pick on somebody who's not doing it right. I picked on a, a mission president in, in, uh, Portland, Oregon, because he had instructed his missionaries that, that they were not to baptize anyone who was using medical marijuana. Now keep in mind, marijuana for medicinal purposes was legal in the state of Oregon, but to this mission, mission president, to him it was an evil, so he would not, he would not allow anyone to come to Christ. It didn't matter if they humbled themselves and wanted to come to Christ. He was looking at it as he was looking at baptism the way I looked at it when I was a missionary. This is what we do to bring people into our church. And we don't want people in our church who smoke and drink or dance the hoochie-coo. We only want people in our church who fit the image and who will be good examples to others. So so I picked on him, and sometimes I pick on others, and I picked on Boyd K. Packer for making up his own doctrines. And I'm not even talking about the gay thing. I'm just talking about um, a talk he gave where he where he instructed the members, you know, that there are certain things that they're expected to do uh, to show deference to the leaders. And I, I feel all that's unfortunate. But anyway, so that's what I'm about. My blog is about uh, trying to scrape off the barnacles of myth and culture and, and assumptions and get down to the beautiful, pure doctrines. And we've we've simply forgotten the things that Joseph Smith taught about how magnificent the universe is and how how the the Spirit fills the universe, and who who, and what the Holy Ghost is. Uh, uh, I, I don't think we have an inkling anymore. So anyway, that's I guess that's all I have to say. That's that's what motivates me. I'm basically I'm basically saying, look, this is where I've been wrong, and uh, this is what we really should be doing. And if we look at our religion in its pure state, there's there's nothing to complain about. There's nothing anyone would object to. It's all the junk that's accumulated on top of it that causes the problems in Mormonism and is causing people to leave the church. And getting back to Brad Wilcox, one of the and I don't I don't know that he'll benefit by my endorsing him. <laughs> but but he what he's what he's found is we've got we've been we've been getting it wrong. We've got God all wrong. Forgiveness is instantaneous. And this is why when we sin daily, we when we were sent here, we were expected to sin. We were expected to miss the mark. 
We don't have to make a big deal of it. All we have to do is recognize, oh, I stepped off the curve. I'll get back up on this on the path and and continue on our way. We don't have to make a big deal of it. We don't have we shouldn't have to wait a year and prove that we can attend church uh, before you know if 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 we're disfellowshipped or excommunicated from the church. In Joseph Smith's day, he excommunicated people frequently, those close to him. But then he let them right back in as soon as they repented. He didn't make them prove themselves. But I think one reason that we that we have to prove ourselves is because we may not be going, our leaders, a, a bishop may not know how to go by the Spirit. So he has to go by the handbook that tells him, well, safe thing to do is make the person wait a year to prove that they're worthy to go to the temple right. or to get back in the church. I, Rock, I appreciate it. If, uh, my last comment would only be to hit on, I think, the theme of, of your blog, which is the gospel is not the church, and the church I don't think even claims that. There was a recent conference talk that said as much, that the gospel is to strengthen the feeble knees and to lift the hands that hang down, and, and that inasmuch as the church assists us in becoming like Christ, then more power to it, um, but that our focus should not be on the letter of the law, but on the spirit of the law, on becoming like Christ, and on emulating the Savior. Yeah, we, we really do need to become a more Christ-centered religion. Like I said before, most of us think we are, but we're missing the mark. Excellent. Because we're, we've become a church-centered religion. We need to get Christ back. And, and one way of, of getting that is to really read the Book of Mormon again and, and look at how often it stresses Christ and redemption race.